early on relied on John MacArthur's uh, outline. I'm going to take, have the audacity to peck away at it a little bit and tweak some things. But going back to chapter 3, verse 5, in this section of the demonstrating of Christ's preeminence in the lives of believers, God started with just addressing, particularly in verses 5 through 8, the sanctifying of the heart and the life of each individual believer. From there then, he moved in verses 11 through 16 into emphasizing the sanctifying of a church and its whole body and the critical things that should happen because of Christ's preeminence there. And I would really say verse 17 we could separate out as kind of this Mount Everest or this middle section that just promotes the totality of a life devotion to Christ. And now we're moving into what we might call a third subsection. Back up if you would, just a second, Sam, thanks. To the home and the need for the sanctifying of, of a marriage and a family. So God is now zeroing in on the most nitty-gritty part of our personal lives within the four walls and under the roof of each believer's home, where our deepest relationships are forged, where our secrets dwell, where so many hours of our lives are spent. Home is the easiest place to live in ungodly ways. And it is often the hardest place to maintain Christ-likeness in all the things simply because of so many hours of our day and our lives being there. But our devotion to Christ is not just about what we're seeing in public here with each other. God cares just as much that he and Christ are permeating our private lives as well so there aren't differences between how we live in public and how we live in private. So now we hone in today, particularly on verses 18 and 19. The first place that God goes to start to talk about the home is in the marriage relationship between believers who are united, not only by their vows to each other, but even more by Christ and in Christ. So, big audacious title for this, Christ is all. That's still the little phrase from verse 11 of chapter 3 that we'll keep bringing to bear on all of these things and how he is working in a husband, working in a wife, and working in a marriage covenant. And one way we can say what's commanded here in Colossians 3 is really the undoing of the curse. Going all the way back to Genesis 3, when God, speaking to Eve, addressed marriage and said that the wife's desires will often be contrary to her husband's, and the struggle for the man is that he shall often, all too often, rule over, they will rule over wives. So, in marriage... Husbands, you will have many opportunities to mistreat your wife, and wives, you will have many opportunities to push against your husband in sinful ways. And God here is going to address that. Remarkable, remarkable that for the complexity of marriage, God gives, in essence, two little tight, short sentences, at least here in Colossians. He could have given us 50 commands and pieces of instruction that we could have readily used. But these two are huge and profoundly significant. 
as Tim Chelly says, on one hand, it's so simple, so simple, and yet it takes a lifetime of effort and a lifetime of growth. We're going to acknowledge up front that for some, probably sitting here today or listening online, and there actually may be some who wouldn't come on a Sunday like this because of what's being preached, knowing the text, that for this is a touchy subject, perhaps a triggering subject. Um, and I realize that if you want to be critical of the church, of Christians, you will find something wrong and bad in today. Because so many are discrediting this, rejecting it, and proclaiming other ways of doing marriage. But I'm praying that any who do have their hearts set against, if, if nothing else, the word submit here, that you will look, you will listen, and you will ask God to give greater understanding. It may be hard to understand. It may be often misapplied and misused and caused much harm. But that in itself is not a license for us to disregard this or to say what God really meant was something other than what he said. Now, a couple other introductory comments will roll into the text. In my experience, if this is helpful at all, in all my short years of pastoring, but also in longer years of pre-marriage counseling, I've observed that there are three things that really heavily influence how a husband and wife do whether that's in those early years as they're first starting or really decades into their relationships. One is, a huge one, how accurate of an understanding they each have about Scripture or how biblically grounded each one is or how spiritually mature their understanding of marriage and God's design for marriage is. It has a huge impact. Secondly, what we might call the wiring, the personality, the makeup, the spirit of a man and a woman as they come together, and how well all of that aligns or doesn't align with God's assignments. In other words, some women have no struggle submitting. Others have tremendous struggles. Some husbands have no real struggle to lay down their lives for their wives. Many husbands do. And then third, that the life experiences of each one, what they've experienced in their home growing up, what they've experienced in other settings, what they've experienced in churches, what they've experienced in dating relationships, uh, all kinds of dynamics come into play there, uh, what we call baggage, that all rest here. But I want to press that no matter what those unique dynamics are, and they're different for every single couple, as different as each snowflake is from each other. Lots of different factors complexly in there. No matter what, we're still called as Christ followers with Christ in us who are seeking to do everything in his name to align ourselves with this design of God's. Also want to just briefly, and I did this in the midweek email as well, but briefly say uh, to those who are not sitting here this morning married. Uh, if you came knowing this was going to be a message on marriage, I'm grateful you're here. You should be. I'm thankful you came. Uh, but if this is catching you off guard, I want to urge you to still listen. Um, a married person is still called in the church to speak into the lives of singles, 
and singles are called in the church to speak into the lives of the marrieds. And you just don't know how, but a couple of examples of that might be. I just recently had a child in our body who expressed concern to me about how much fighting their mom and dad did. I didn't, I didn't go looking for that, but it comes, and then it's, okay, Lord, how do we address this and deal with this? Any of us can see a husband or a wife acting inappropriately, sometimes on a Sunday morning, more often someplace else in the culture or society or the city. So you don't have to be married to care about what God calls husbands and wives to be. So these are familiar. I would guess very few, if any people looking at these two verses that we're going to look at, say, I've never heard this before. But familiarity sometimes is dangerous for us, right? We bring our presumptions, we bring our assumptions about what we know and how well we understand. And so let's just ask God for a greater understanding uh, of his heart here as we hover over these important concepts and that he will work to sanctify us in them. Heavenly Father, we just come again to thank you for these two sentences that we see here before us in our Bibles that are incredibly important. But we will also acknowledge when we think of the standard of your holiness, incredibly daunting to live out. So we cry out this morning both for asking for mercy and forgiveness from you for the many ways in which we fail to live these out. But asking also for your help and power to grow in that, to repent, to obey it more, to have it uh, sanctify us more. So would you please use this toward that end in this body, in each marriage, in this minister, in each of your sons and daughters, currently married or not, for your glory's sake at First Street Bible Church, I pray. Amen. So first up, our wives, and the opening command is uh, bold in that, submit to your husband. So here we are studying this in a culture that is warring over women's rights, the place of women, the greatness of women, the needs of women, all of that, many accusations of patriarchy and misogyny, which is just prejudice against women in any way in which we seek to put them down. And it's not happening only in the world. It's happening in the church, in the greater Christendom as well. So let's consider what God is commending here for a marriage that's done in his name. Prioritizing a husband over oneself. And you're going to hear some similarity when we get to the husband side as well. As the two of you travel side by side through life, more concerned or just as concerned about helping him as about watching out for yourself. Willingly submitting your desires. If you remember the word in Genesis 3.16, your desire will be contrary to your husband. Submitting your desires and will to blend with his rather than constantly chafe against it or combat it. To humbly yield control to someone else. Not so you're controlled by them, but that you resist the urge to control him. Willingly conforming yourself to fit with another. Cooperating in every way that you can 
in the name of the Lord with your husband. Perhaps this is some of what Solomon was alluding to in his repeated observations in the book of Proverbs, that a wife's quarreling or her not submitting of her desires, of her constantly pushing her desires and will against her husband is a continual dripping of rain. Or 21.9, it's better to live in the corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Or 21.19, it's better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. The idea is to work as partners, as a team, not as competitors, not as in taking turn or which, which is greater or dominating, but submitting on all of that to work together. It's also important here to note what it does not mean. Not in equality between a man and woman, the man being lesser or greater in any way. It's not inferiority in any way of the woman. It's also worth noting it does not say obey the husband, as we'll see with children obeying the parent, as if the husband is the one who sets rules for his wife to follow. And it's not subjecting yourself to being sinfully mistreated, abused, damaged, and sinned against, especially when you don't see any repentance at work in a husband. It gives pause here to say if you have been abused by a man, know that is a grievous sorrow to us. And we as a church want to help in whatever ways we can toward your healing from that. And to assure you that by his wounds we are healed from even the most painful of abuses. And if you are ever being abused, to know that part of what the church is designed to do is to help protect against that. More on that later. But at the same time here, it's important for us to be clear that submission as a general command from God concept is at the very heart of Christianity. And that starts with all Christ followers having to submit to the authority, and you're going to notice over and over in this section of Colossians that Jesus is referred to as Lord, 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 Lord. So James 4, 7 is just one very simple, tight way of illustrating this, that in order to ever draw near to God and be in fellowship with God, it starts, the first step is our submitting and bowing of our knee before him. Gavin Ortland says, Submission, uh, and here is a wife submitting to a husband, won't make much sense if you aren't practicing it first and foremost to God. The act of becoming a Christian in itself is an act of submission. We submit both to God's assessment of our sins and to his remedy for our condition. And then throughout the entire Christian life, we must continually submit to God over and over. All other submission in our lives should flow from this foundation. And then we can go on, submitting as citizens of our nation, of our state, of our city. If you want just a simple example, I always think driving is full of lots of examples. But if you're not submissive in driving, you or somebody else is going to pay for that uh, in all kinds of ways. Um, 
We're submissive as employees, and that's going to come up in Colossians 3. We're submissive as children within families. We're submissive as participants in almost any organization that we're in, both to written rules and to unwritten ones. We're submissive as church members to the elders, but also the elders to each other within that whole council, and then the whole church, all believers, as Ephesians 5 shows us, to each other within a local body. So a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Ephesians 5 on the singing part that's grayed there, but bringing now to the forefront that right out of that in Ephesians 5, this parallel passage, just as the word of Christ in Colossians 3 is to be dwelling in us here in Ephesians 5, the spirit is to be filling us, dwelling in us, controlling us. And part of what that will do is that we'll not only sing, give thanks, but we'll also submit ourselves readily to each other. Philippians 2 perhaps defines it as clearly as anything without ever using the word submit. But if you want to have a concept of what God is intending when he says this, it's the idea of not acting out of a self-focused, self-serving ambition or desire uh, or motivation or out of pride. Those two things will, are the antithesis of submission and will wipe out any submissiveness that Christ may be developing. And then, in humility, counting, considering, viewing, thinking of others as more significant than ourselves. And then he goes on to just give an illustration that just if you take the idea of interest, you're looking not only to your own, and notice it doesn't say you don't think at all about your own interests, but it says if you will just value other people's interests as much as you value your own, you're in a good place for God to work. And that that's a mindset that Christ has given us because he has shown it himself. So submission is at the very heart of Christianity. Michael Kruger notes, it's not a female virtue. It's a Christian virtue. And then he pushes Christian men should be a model of submission to whatever authorities they are under. So women who become wives are called to one additional emphasis of submission here. And then finally, let's note here, before we move into the second half of verse 17, that this doesn't mean a husband is not ever in any way submitting to his wife in anything. And it doesn't mean that his wife is not in any way ever leading in any area of their family and home. So certainly this concept has been stretched far beyond God's intention. The second half of verse 18 adds an interesting phrase, probably one we often just skim or skip over. Because it's not a command. It's an explanation, a reason why, or a further description of that submission. It seems to be saying here, it's a submission that fits in all that the Lord commands in his word. In other words, it's not a submission to sinful things. It's only fitting in the Lord if it's for righteous and holy and good things. Uh, it's what befits wives who are in Christ. This fits a godly woman. It's what beautifies and adorns a woman who belongs to him if she is in a marriage relationship. It's not our own opinion and feelings determining what's fitting. It's not the cultural pressure to alter it that determines what's fitting. And it's not 
the quality of your husband's love or husbanding that determines what's fitting. It's the Lord. And back to verse 17, it's fitting for doing everything in his name. That's the standard, the caveat, the uh, world in which this submission takes place. Now verse 19, God turns to the husbands. And let's note a couple of things. First of all, that it says nothing about the husband being the head here. Doesn't mean that he isn't. Ephesians 5 is clear on that. It simply is showing that's not God's main emphasis here. Rather, it's love. And the same is really true in Ephesians 5, where headship is in a, a sentence or a part of a sentence, and then love is sentence after sentence after sentence that God addresses. But what we're going to clearly see is that God is asking husbands to do what he asks wives to do. It's two sides of the same coin of dying to self. So, how do we define love? We know it, agape love. It's prioritizing, in this context, your wife over yourself and over others as well. As the two of you travel side by side through life, you being more concerned or just as concerned about helping her as you are about watching out for yourself. It's to live with her sacrificially, not on a literal altar or cross or taking a bullet, but giving up your own desires and will, which is often even harder, in order to fulfill hers. It's to invest all of yourself into what is good for her and for the two of you, more than in what you see as good for just you. It's to care for her tenderly, gently, as we'll see in the second half of this verse, as the most important person in all the world to you, caring for her spiritual health, her emotional health, her physical well-being. Not just feelings you have, but the extent to which you will go to extend and show genuine care for her. Tim Challey's notes here, one of the strange paradoxes of the married life is that the person I love the most is the person I will sin against the most. I will have a lifetime of opportunities to love my wife, but also to hurt her. To bless my wife, but also to sin against her. Every day, I will have the opportunity to live with her selflessly, but also to battle the temptation to live with her selfishly. Kent Hughes. Marriage is a call to die to self. And a man who does not die for his wife does not come close to the love to which he is called. Christian marriage vows are the inception of a lifelong practice of death. Not a good phrase. Of giving over not only what you have, but all you are. Is this a grim gallows call? Not at all. It is no more grim than dying to self and following Christ. In fact, those who lovingly die to their wives are those who know the most joy, have the most fulfilling marriages, and experience the most love in return. Now, the second half of verse 19, the husband doesn't get a why. He gets a second or a refining command to go with and really spell out this love, a warning to particularly guard himself against. I'm told the Greek word here comes with the idea of holding a grudge against. 
So we might think of it as not being irritated with our wives, frustrated with them, angry with them, especially when their significant gender differences may tempt us to arrogantly wish they were more like us, which is the last thing they should be. It's unforgiving, resentful, which then grows into bitterness, a heart hardening toward a wife rather than tenderizing. It could also entail being overbearing, controlling, mean, insensitive, gruff, rough, brusque, cold, demanding, demeaning, calloused, impatient, one who blames her for everything, one who focuses on her sins and faults far more than on her beauty and excellence, one who must never take advantage of her for his own selfish gain. Jeremy Pierre, a pastor, notes, people who are harsh, and we maybe we'll say husbands who are harsh, often think of themselves as bold or frank or even courageous. But this is not strength. This is moral weakness. Harshness hurts and damages a woman far more than it does a man. Oppresses and suppresses her scares her, scars her, and pushes her away, whether you intend for that or not. And again, it should be obvious that there is no place whatsoever for meanness and abuse in a marriage. A wife's submissiveness is never permissiveness for a man to mistreat God's daughter. Verbally, physically, Emotionally, sexually, financially, and most of all, spiritually. Manipulating her with misuses of scripture. Husbands, let's realize, one minute of harshness undoes and wipes out hundreds of minutes of tenderness. And let's also realize that we may not start out harsh in the euphoria years of our marriage, but over time, we can certainly become grumpy curmudgeons. Two scriptures that came to mind thinking through this, familiar to us. The definition that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 13, where he, and if you just think of this now, husbands, for yourselves within marriage, it's the, the the passages for the whole church and all believers, but a husband should be particularly, most of all, patient and kind toward his wife. No man should treat other women or other people better than he treats his wife. Not envious, not boastful, not arrogant. Not rude to her, that's part of that harshness, irritable, resentful toward her. Not insistent on having things his way. And then the all-encompassing, he must bear all things in and with his wife and for his wife. He must believe and hope and endure faithfully with her through all of the decades. 
And then Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit applied in a marriage is that a husband should be patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled toward his wife above all others. Martin Lloyd-Jones reminds husbands here that the whole of the husband's thinking must include his wife also. He must never think of himself in isolation or detachment. The moment he does so, he has broken the most fundamental principle of marriage. And now with your eyes, would you connect the love in verse 19 with the love back in verse 14? For this point, what was true about love in a church body, which is it is of utmost importance because that is what binds everything together in perfect harmony, is just as true for a marriage relationship. So husbands, study and learn how to love from God's word and your study of God and your understanding of God and from other men, godly husbands. Learn how to love God because you're not going to love your wife well if you're not loving God well. As Keller points out, you'll never be a good groom to your wife if you're not first a good bride to Jesus. Study and learn how to love the unique, one-of-a-kind woman God has given you as a wife. Do not measure that by how you define it and how you feel loved. Don't even measure it by how she defines it and how she feels loved. Measure it by Christ's love for her, his daughter. Couple of summer. So I had 11 pages yesterday, 20, 26 hours ago, I had 11 pages for a four and a half page sermon, which is a five page sermon. So some of these closing thoughts are not wonderfully linked together like good public speakers and preachers can do. These are just dropped in, like didn't get edited out, but didn't get transitioned in super smoothly. So hopefully helpful to just thinking through verses 18 and 19 in a bigger context. So in the whole of Scripture, these commands to submit in love are genderless. They're two sides of the same coin. They're applicable for all men, all women who are followers of Christ. So, a wife is called to submit in marriage here, but in the whole of Scripture, every believer is called to submit. A husband is called to love here, but in the whole of marriage, every believer is to love with the kind of love that's described here. God is just revealing to us that every Christian husband really needs to focus on being a loving person that honors him, that particularly honors him, and that's a particularly sanctifying thing in a man. And every Christian wife really needs to focus on being a submissive person in Christ, for that really sanctifies her and is pleasing to the Lord. God calls both a husband and wife to sacrifice themselves for the good of the other. Different in expression, equal in needing to be selfless. Self-centered men make terrible husbands. Self-centered women make terrible wives. Generally, the more each spouse sacrifices of themselves, the better their marriage. 
If you want a silver bullet to walk away from today with, make it this. Die to yourself. Deny yourself. Practice death, as R. Kent Hughes put it. I think another significant thing here that's very helpful is to note why do verses 18 and 19 follow 11 to 17 or that section? Why has God positioned these this way? Why didn't he go from personal holiness in verses 5 to 9, then to marriage, and then out to the church? Why did he put the church first? I think this is part of what he's saying is all the things he's going to say about the home are functioning under the umbrella of the church. So our point is God has designed the church to play an important role in Christian marriages. And five reflections on this very, very quickly. Uh, they'll come out in the email if you don't get the... I try to boldface at least a shorthand key thought. One is the church is using the word of Christ even as we are this morning, but in every Sunday in all of its contexts, in all of its life groups everywhere. We're not just looking for what the world is saying. We're not looking for the latest things published on marriage. We're teaching what God has to say and giving the truth that is fitting and right in the Lord so that all of us can fulfill verse 17. Now, we're told this even explicitly in Titus 2 about, among the women that God's design in here is the older women, the women who have learned much, often through very hard and painful experiences, are to be actively concerned about the younger women and actively training. And this is not just those that have the gift of teaching. This is all the older women passing on to the coming generations all of these important truths and two different references to marriage within this. First of all, loving their husbands and then at the end of the verse, submitting to their husbands. And all of this is so that what God reveals in his word may not be reviled by the young women and by the men who marry them. Secondly, the church provides a wide range of marriages. No two alike but so many living, dynamic examples in front of you that you can watch and learn from. And if there were more time and this were such a public setting, I could name so many of you and so many neat qualities I've learned or still am trying to learn from you. Third, the church provides combined wisdom, counsel, support as couples go through all of the deep valleys and hardships and challenges of life. No two walk the same road, but all of us help each other and share what we've learned with each other through that process. Fourth, the many eyes and ears of the body provide <clears throat> an accountability. We're watching and we're listening to each other, and that's good, that's not bad, that's good. So many couples stay away from the church for the fourth and fifth reasons. They don't want anybody in their marriage business, but they need people in their marriage business. It's why their marriage business so often is so miserable. So we watch and we listen and we note things and we make comments to each other and we teach and admonish, all part of the way we all get sharpened in our marriages. And then sometimes the body has to act collectively to discipline a husband or a wife who becomes trapped in sin, unfaithful to their vows. Certainly not the only reason that we are disciplined as a church, but one, as a means of protecting the marriages within it. 
as one writer noted, or preacher, it's not about Lone Ranger husbands, and I'm going to throw in there, it's also not about rogue wives. Like, it can go either gender here. Deciding according to their own whims what's good for them and their families. It's about husbands and wives under God's authority and the authority of a local church. Cherishing, honoring, and building up their families. Finally, let's land this plane in Christ again. Doing marriage according to Christ, in Christ, for Christ, by Christ. So many prepositions we could use there. But I want to circle back to that phrase in chapter 3, verse 11, Christ is all. Yes, it is possible to do marriage Christless without Christ and have some level of happiness. You can see it in all the unbelievers' marriages in the world, some of them way happier than some of ours. But the more we do marriage for the name, for the sake, and for the glory of Christ, the more purposeful, beautiful, rich, and deep our marriage relationships become. It's a little longer quote. Probably shouldn't spend time on it because of time, but I'm going to. So hang on to the burning roast. It's a little longer, but it's, it's partly good because it challenges individuals, young couples, but it also challenges preachers and teachers. Everything, John Piper says, is from him and through him and to him. That is the starting place for understanding marriage. If we get this wrong, everything goes wrong. But if we get it right, really right in our heads and in our hearts, then marriage will be transformed by it. Most young people today, and I wouldn't categorize it as just young, do not bring to their courtship and marriage a great vision of God, who he is, what he is like, and how he acts. And in the church, the view of God that young couples bring to their relationship is so small instead of huge, so marginal instead of central, so vague instead of clear, so impotent instead of all-determining, and so uninspiring instead of ravishing. That when they marry, the thought of living marriage for the glory of God is without meaning and without context. And there will not be a passion for the supremacy and the glory of God in the hearts of married people until God himself in his manifold glories is known. Amen. And he will not be known in his manifold glories until pastors and teachers speak of him tirelessly and constantly and deeply and biblically and faithfully and distinctly and thoroughly and passionately. Marriage lived for the glory of God will be the fruit of churches permeated with the glory of God. So, knowing God and cherishing God and valuing the glory of God above all things, verse 17, including your spouse is the key to living marriage to the glory of God. It's true in marriages and all other relationships, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. One more thought that unlocks that. Here's what I think verses 18 and 19 are encapsulating in the whole of Scripture. A man and a woman in a union forged by God through their covenant vows journey day by day together through life, either side by side as, side by side as equal servants of the Lord, each called by God to fulfill his purposes, God's purposes, for their lives and their redeemed lives. Every man who marries is to be a husband who obeys and portrays Christ by how he loves his wife. So she becomes more and more like Christ. 
And every woman who marries is to be a wife who obeys and portrays Christ by how she submits herself to her husband. So he becomes more and more like Jesus. Together, they spur each other on each day, even in the midst of all their clashes with their sin, in service of their King and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. One more sweep at this concept. Christ shows wives how to truly submit to their husbands by perfectly submitting to God the Father in every way while on earth in order to glorify him. And Christ shows husbands how to love, truly love their wives by perfectly loving God the Father and by himself being a perfect bridegroom of the church. As Bunyan says to husbands, be a husband who by the way he husbands preaches Christ to his wife every day. Three closing thoughts. In Christ, both husband and wife find their perfect example to follow. Keller, again, the relationship of the father and the son is a pattern for the relationship of husband and wife. The son submits to the father's headship with free, voluntary, and joyful eagerness, not out of coercion or inferiority. And the, hus the father's headship is acknowledged in reciprocal delight, respect, and love. Secondly, in Christ, every husband and wife find sweet forgiveness. For there is no place probably that we sin more against another human than in our marriages. As we keep confessing day after day for thousands upon thousands of days, if God gives us that long of a marriage to each other and to Christ and repenting, lest our hearts become cold and hard by the deceitfulness of sin. And finally, in Christ, every person, particularly through his cross and his resurrection, every husband and wife find or is infused with divine supernatural power to carry out his or her charge from God for the sake and glory of Christ's name. May Christ increasingly become all to you and to your marriage for his glory.